Now, if you'll turn in your Bibles, please, I'd like to speak this morning from Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Having opened your Bible, let us bow together in prayer. Our Father and our God, we thank thee that in our hands we hold the infallible word of God. We thank thee that we can read it, but that the Holy Spirit must be our teacher. So we ask it now in the quietness of this hour that he indeed would open our minds and teach us wonderful truths out of thy law. Close out from our minds the things that would distract the cares of today and the problems of tomorrow, that now we would see Jesus Christ. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. As you know, the book of Romans is a great work of the Apostle Paul, who was moved by the Spirit of God to write this epistle. It's a letter to a church, the Church of Rome. And in the first chapter, if you'll turn back a few pages, you will recall that Contrary to the popular thinking of today and the sociologists today who think that the world is getting better and better, the Apostle Paul, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, says that the world was getting worse and worse. In fact, so bad was it that God gave them up to their reprobate minds. Notice, if you will, the end of that, verse 29, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who, knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. The climax of sin is devolution of mankind, turning away from God. They, having a knowledge of God, knowing God, deliberately turned around and went the other way. Their sinful hearts, bringing forth the sinful deeds, they cared not, and they walked, and society went down, down, down. Our social planners today try to encourage us by saying, look, we're making new progress in the realm of urban renewal. Our society is getting better. We can feed more, house more. We can communicate faster than ever before. Society is progressing. But on the other side of that ledger comes the increasing crime rates, the increasing civil disobedience, the increasing all that we go along the line on a downward path, and it offsets all that the social planners would say, but look how we've improved. No, my friends, you see, Paul, in writing the book of Romans, sets forth the sin and the climax of sin. Not only did they know it was wrong, but they found pleasure in doing it. Isn't that almost a modern commentary on today's pages? They take pleasure in doing that which God's word forbids. The second chapter goes on by saying that there, are, there were those who were condemning in others things that were in their own hearts and minds and lives. And God's word says, who are you to judge someone else? And yet you have that same sin. Now, this is rather frequent, too, isn't it, among church people? We are quick to condemn somebody else for doing something, but yet many times we find it way down in the recess of our own hearts or practices that same thing is found in us. 
We're inexcusable to blame someone else to point it out when the word of God should be bringing conviction to each of our hearts and minds. We should be living holy and God-fearing lives in days like today, honoring of Jesus Christ. He went on to say that the these men who had this light were boasting and sinning against the light that they had revealed to them. Chapter 3, he asked the question, well then, who is a Jew? Who's the real Jew? Is he one in the flesh or is he one in the spirit? The answer was a resounding one of the circumcision of the heart. A man has to be truly born again to become a Christian. While this is not news to this congregation, it's certainly news to so many who are belonging to churches, hoping that their churchmanship, hoping that their workmanship hoping that their relationship will earn or merit them eternal life. But oh, how clear the word of God is. It is not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy has he saved us by the washing and regeneration of the Holy Spirit. It is not our membership in a church that saves us. It is not our workmanship within that framework of a church. And it's certainly no relationships that we bear. It is the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, that cleanses us from all unrighteousness. The fourth chapter goes on to say, setting forth a great example of Abraham. If you notice the ninth verse, cometh this blessedness then upon the circumcision only, or upon the uncircumcision also? For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. Here he was setting forth that righteousness and faith was not dependent upon rights, the right of circumcision. Abraham had faith and he believed and he was circumcised, so his righteousness and his faith was not dependent upon the right of circumcision. Drop your eyes down to verse 13. For the promise that he should be the heir of the world was to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Again, Faith was not dependent upon the law. Faith was not dependent upon right nor upon the law. So in verse 19, And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead when he was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. Abraham, the giant of faith. So you start off with this epistle, as setting forth the devolution of man, turning away from God and God's righteous, holy law. They chose in their own mind to be disobedient, and God gave them up to their reprobate mind. You've now progressed to the example of faith. Now we're ready to begin the fifth chapter of the book of Romans. As you well know, October sets forth the anniversary of the nailing of the theses, the Reformation. And so it's well that we think about this particular chapter in Romans chapter 5. We had it read for us, but let's go over it again and highlight some of these verses, please. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I'd like to endeavor this morning to set before you two columns in your mind. In the one column, we're going to have what we were and highlight words of these verses from the Romans chapter 5. And then on the other column, we'll have what we have. So there are two columns of words, what we were, what we have by God's grace. All right, let's go down now and we'll read and then we'll go back and pick out those words that we'd like to show you. Verse 2, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace, wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, 
knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. What were we, according to the Apostle Paul? Verse 6 sets it forth. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Do you know what the United States of America needs most of all? It's the same thing that this whole world needs most of all. To realize that each man, each woman, each boy, each girl that is born in this world is born dead in trespasses and sins. There are none righteous. There is not one righteous person. So many, you see, have their thinking confused and gray. And so they would say, well, our child is born innocent. He is neutral. Though he becomes a certain age, and then he becomes a sinner because that age arrives. The age is unknown, and so that varies among people. Or they will say, our son or our daughter is innocent until they do something. But you see, if you go back in your Bibles, as you hear, no. You understand that when Adam and Eve fell, they brought into their world sinners, and that sin passed on down to us. Sometimes ministers feel they have learned a great deal in school, only to go to postgraduate school in the ministry and in the pastorate. Some feel they have concluded their education after they're in the pastorate a while and know just about everything. There are others who realize that they're still in that graduate school of the pastorate, still in the graduate school of the Word of God, and they have not learned everything. And I was one when I went to visit a home in California. The mother was a young mother with two little girls, very interested in knowing that her daughter truly was saved. Now her daughter was just in nursery school. So it bothered the mother to be, wanted to be sure that the pastor would come and talk to her nursery school daughter and make sure she understood salvation. I came in not knowing what the conversation would develop, but was thrilled as I left with an illustration I had never even thought of with all of my schooling, with all of my experience, and I share it with you today. There we were, seated in the living room, and the mother looked at her little daughter and she said, go ahead, honey, tell the pastor about sin. And so I sat and I listened. Here's the illustration of how a child is born in sin. She said, well, mommy told me that when a mama horse and a daddy horse has a baby, they have a baby horse. And I agreed with that. That didn't take a whole lot of understanding or education. I agreed with that. And she said, mother said that when a mother cow and a father cow have a baby, they have a baby cow. And I nodded with that. And she said, Mother told me that when Adam was a sinner and Eve was a sinner and they had a baby, they had a sinful baby. 
that was a nursery school child, had thought this through because of comparing the horses and the cows and having sinful parents, you have a sinful child. You know, there's a great deal of truth in that. In fact, that is it. As Paul said, when we were without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. What can a dead man do? Absolutely nothing. When we were without strength, Christ died for us. He was the one that paid it all. To him we owe all glory and honor and thanksgiving and praise. In due time, Christ died for those of us who were without strength. Have you ever exhausted all of your strength? Have you ever come to that place either in an athletic event or in some point in your life with your physical being that you are absolutely spent of all of your energies? If you have, then you'll have an idea and an understanding about what it is to be without strength. If you were in the youthful years and had ever entered a race and not being properly trained or properly prepared and you entered that race with full expectations of winning it, in fact, it may have been that you were overly conceited and you thought, surely, you were going to win it. And so you got on your mark and the gun went off and you ran down. And then you kept running and running and you stumbled across the line and you were without strength. My friend, this is the picture that Paul was portraying. Without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. So many look back and they think that they have done something It was by their own education processes by the years that have rolled on, by their service accumulating, and so they graduate into the Christian life. Not so, my friend. What were we? We were without strength. Wasn't it wonderful when being without strength, Christ died for us and gave us faith to believe, and we have everlasting life through him? Without strength, that's what we were. The second thing Paul tells us is in the eighth verse. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet Sinners, without strength, we were sinners. Now, some have the idea that sinners are those who are bums on Market Street. Some have the idea that sinners are those who curse all the time. Some have the idea that sinners are those who are behind prison bars. These certainly are sinners. For we should not be wallowing on Market Street. We should not be cursing with our lips and with our mouths. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain, and certainly we should not steal, nor more murder, nor do any crimes which would put us behind the prison bars. These are sinners. But so are the people who have not yet acknowledged their own sin. So are those who have been the finest of people, the kindest of mothers, the nicest of fathers, the most genteel persons, are still sinners before a holy and a righteous God. Why? Because we know that the word of God says that it's not our own righteousness that we stand before the Lord. For our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. It's the righteousness of Christ counted over to us, us who are sinners. For while we were without strength, without hope, while we were completely expended and dead in trespasses and sins, Christ died for us. For while God commends his love toward us, while we were yet sinners. You know, the mercies and the glories of God are without enumerating, without finishing off. My, when you think of that, Christian, while we were sinners, Christ reached down out of the miry clay, picked us up and put us on a rock and washed us. How? With his own precious blood. While we were yet sinners, the commended love of God to us, unworthy, 
unworthy before God, and yet he commended his love to us and saved us that we might have everlasting life, might serve him now, and might be with him forever and ever. Greater love hath no man than this, and commended love for those who were unworthy. While we were without strength, while we were yet sinners, what else does he say? Verse 10 gets a little stronger. For if when we were being enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Let's turn to the Ephesians chapter 2 for just a moment, please. Ephesians chapter 2. In the third verse, Paul, writing this letter to the church at Ephesus, says, Among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace are ye saved, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. Now notice in the 13th verse, But now in Christ Jesus ye who sometimes were afar off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. Enemies of God. Not I, you cry, but the word of God says, yes, you. Enemies of God, doing those things which displeased him, doing those things which were contrary to his word. Enemies of God. My, how we need preachers to proclaim the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ. Brethren, would you pray for Shelton? Brethren, would you pray for Highland? Brethren, would you play, pray that these schools would be great feeders in the Faith Theological Seminary and that from these halls will come forth the great fiery evangelists of the coming century if God tarries? For what must our country hear? They must hear that we were without strength. They must hear that we are sinners. They must hear that we are enemies of God, but God in his commending his love has applied the blood of Jesus Christ to those who will believe and accept him as their Savior. This is what we were without strength. This is what we were, sinners. This is what we were, enemies of God. And then verse 10, back in Romans. For if when we were being enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled we shall be saved by his life. Here we were, without strength, sinners, enemies, but we were reconciled. Today in United Presbyterian Church and other churches, the word reconciliation is the big word. Unfortunately, the definition has changed. Reconciliation to the 
liberals and the apostates today means going out and making humanity live in a brotherly way. Reconciliation means leaving the sanctuaries and going into the streets and making society anew and afresh. Reconciling fallen men by their own bootstraps is an impossible situation. Far afield from the definitions of Scripture, reconciliation is far different than what is being taught today in Sunday school literature and expounded from pulpits. Reconciliation, you know it, is what? Here I am, a sinner unworthy. I'm a sinner without strength. I'm a sinner who is an enemy of God. And yet Jesus Christ reconciled me to God through his death on the cross and paid the payment with his own blood that I, through him, might have everlasting life. For I, praise God, have been reconciled, is the testimony of the Christian. Reconciled, made right, because he, Christ Jesus, died for the individual who can say he saved me washed me. That's salvation, isn't it? That's reconciliation. Here's reconciliation, God in the flesh, coming in the person of Jesus Christ, being born of a virgin, walking among men, speaking, healing, teaching. But he didn't come to heal and to speak and to teach. He came to lay his arms out. While no one held them down, he himself held them out while nails were pounded through them, while nails were driven through his feet, and he was hung up to die. And there on the cross, he paid the payment for your sin and mine. So we have been reconciled to him through his death. That's reconciliation, young people. It's not reclaiming society. It's not adjusting wage scales. It's not providing Medicare. It's not providing the needs of mankind. It is satisfying a whole and a righteous God through the payment of his own son. And we have been reconciled to God through Christ Jesus. If this were a Baptist church, there should be amens ringing out. But it being a Bible Presbyterian church, I can hear them all inside saying it. Isn't it true? Amen. Christ reconciled us who were without strength, who were sinners, who were enemies of God. Well then, beloved, with that as our background, it's time we shift to the other column. This is what we were, reconciled to God. Being reconciled, what do we have as Christians? The very first verse tells us that. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have what? Peace with God. Time after time, you'll see it in the newspapers or see it on the television of a, someone going up and here's an accident on a street. And someone will bend down before this person dying on the street and they'll say, make peace with God. Oh, my ill-trained friend, you can't make peace with God. You can't do a thing to make peace with God. He's already made it for you in the person of Jesus Christ. You don't make your peace with God. It is made. And you accept and receive that as justified by faith. You have something. What do you have, Christian? You have peace with God. And the peace of God that passeth all understanding keeps your hearts and minds stayed on Jesus Christ. Why is it you can go to bed at night and not worry what's going to happen? Because you have peace with God. There's no fear of death for you. You take off in a jet and you see the seatbelt sign flash. And you buckle up and you hold on to the arm. But is there any fear of death for you? No. I'm sure you read as I read in this past week about that airliner 
flying over the Caribbean and a sign came on, fasten seatbelts, three were unable to fasten them. The plane dropped two miles, was pushed up two miles, down two miles, and up two miles in the space of a minute and a half. Can you imagine dropping 10,000 feet straight down all of a sudden? You go into an express elevator and you understand what a little bit of that is, but 10,000 feet down, 10,000 feet up and down again. Two bodies were just smashed at the top of that fuselage. For when a plane fell, they stayed in a relationship to where they were and they were crashed on the roof of that airliner. The third one suffered great broken bones throughout her body. Is there any fear of death for us? There is plenty of fear among a lot of people. They go to the hospital and they're afraid to die. We have peace with God. What is death for the Christian? It's stepping from this life of sin and misery and disappointment, disillusionment, sin, the curse of it, and entering into a God-bright spirit world with Christ Jesus there to be forever and ever. We have peace with God. We don't need to make it. It's been made for us. We who are the enemies, we who are the sinners, we who are the ones without strength, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ our Lord. What else do we have? We have, in verse 2, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Do you know what that word, those words, we have access, really mean? It means free admission. Free admission. That's a good sign to see, isn't it? Free admission. You ever see those, you ever get caught in one of these places that says it's free and so you go through the exhibits on your way on your vacation, you know, free, free. So you drive in, family gets out, and you all go through the free exhibit. But at the end, there's a fellow with a pot of money, and you've got to pay to get out of the free exhibit. It's kind of annoying, isn't it? it was, you entered in there with a great expectation of seeing all free, and you wound yourself around, and at the very end, there's a man there to have a gift to get out. It really wasn't free. But this is free admission. Free admission. You know, that's a great sign to be hanging over our Bibles, isn't it? By whom we have free admission, by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. What did it cost you to be saved? Absolutely nothing. What does it cost you to have that peace of God that passes all understanding? Absolutely nothing. What do you possess? I have a relationship with my God that surpasses nothing. I have a relationship with my God who gives me peace and joy and understanding even in the midst of troubles. For my God has promised to be with me even unto death and there at death's door to carry me on into his own visible presence. Free admission into the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. But oh, Christians, why are you so pauperish? Why are you so emaciated? Is it not because we fail to take the free admission into the grace of God? And is it not because we're walking in our own flesh and our own strength and failing to wait on the Lord to be of the good courage and have him strengthen our hearts? I dare say you would join me in saying, I think it is, Pastor. I think it is. Free admission in the grace of God. And yet, how many of there are of us who are affording ourselves with the daily graces of the Lord. Fresh every morning, sure they are. To be seen all about us, indeed they are. 
But God wants us to come into that free admission place and to take these graces of God and to live for him. We have peace with God. We have free access, free admission into this grace. And verse 11, And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. What contrasting words we have had before us. What we were, what we have. Peace, free access into the grace of God, and we have received the atonement. We've been born again. We've been saved. How many of there who know verses of scripture like, What? Know ye not that you've been bought with a price? Therefore, glorify God in your body. And yet, how many are there who are walking in a way that is displeasing to God? Knowing all that we've gone over is very familiar ground. Knowing about a crucifixion. Knowing about a taking down of a body and wrapping it and putting it in a tomb. Knowing about guards standing there and knowing about angels and knowing about an empty tomb and a resurrected Christ knowing about his preparing in heaven mansions, apartments for us, knowing about his promise of coming again, and still walking in this life as though we were unconcerned about his soon return, or walking in this life as though sins didn't really count about my own heart and my life and my walk and my mind and my speech. Can it be that we're like that hymn writer? Years I spent in vanity and pride, caring not my Lord was crucified, knowing not it was for me he died on Calvary. Or can it be that knowing he died for me on Calvary, I am not really moved by my daily activities? If the young people at school cheat, why not? That's the way you get the marks. I'll cheat. Wait a minute, young person. To whom do you belong? You belong to Christ. You don't cheat. Oh, yeah, the other young people are doing it. Sure they are. But you belong to Christ. What about you at work? Everybody else brings pencils home. Everybody else steals from work. Why not? But wait a minute, mister. You belong to Christ. That's the difference. What about all the whispering that goes on over the telephone? What about the unkind words that are said? What about our tongues before Christ? Wait a minute, ladies. You belong to Christ. We have received the atonement. What manner of people ought we to be in all godliness and holy living, knowing of the return of Jesus Christ? What America needs to see are churches like this one on fire for God, holding high the banner of Christ, unashamed of the gospel, and marching on and calling sinners to repentance. Has not God been good to you as a congregation has not God blessed you in the ministry of your pastor through the years with health and strength? Has not God blessed in a way because this church has set before it always the great and effectual door of proclaiming the gospel of Christ? But oh, there's an individual responsibility too. Your pastor is not employed where you are. Your pastor is not in your home room. Your pastor does not live where you live. Who's going to tell the neighbor? Who's going to tell the young person at school? And who is going to tell them at work? Except you and you and you. 
who were without strength, who was the sinner, who was the enemy, who was reconciled, who has peace with God, who has access into his grace, who has been redeemed by the gospel of Christ and is on fire because he lives and moves and has his very being in God. And he knows that this life is only a paltry few years, but he knows that every day God is going to be faithful. He knows through trials and testings and temptations, God will be there. He knows underneath of the everlasting arms, and he looks forward to that day when this world has passed by, and he has the grand family reunion there before the throne of God and of the Lamb, and with his own eyes, he shall behold the Savior on the throne. Because his whole faculties are gripped by the hand of God, he cannot sit any longer and let the world perish. Because his God sent his son and loved him so that he died for him, his mouth cannot be silent. And oh, you people know what we're fighting in the world. You know the horribleness of the apostasy in the churches. You see the Sunday school literature. You see the mission boards. You see the great struggle that we're involved in. What we need are the people behind, the young people, to be standing in the schools, in the elementary school, in the junior high, and the high schools for Christ. What we need are having the parents walking with them and saying, come on, son, come on, daughter, walk in this way. Because why? We have been redeemed. Not with silver and gold from our vain conversation, but with the precious blood of Christ. Because this is what we have in the, by the grace of God. We have his peace. We have access. We have eternal life. And not one of us earned it. It's the free gift of God. Oh, my dear friends in Christ, the hour is short, isn't it? The coming of our Lord draweth nigh. We must be about our Father's business. I'm not here to ask you, how are you doing for Christ? I'm only here to say, isn't it time you looked at your heart and life and the fruits that you should be building up for the glory of God? Isn't it time you looked and seen on your knees beside your bed saying, oh God, thank you for saving my soul. Isn't it time you're looked up, knowing your redemption draweth nigh, you're one day closer to meeting him? Isn't it time you looked at what you were and what you have and who made the difference? It's unto Christ be the glory, unto God be the praise, for we have been saved by him through grace, not of our works. He's a wonderful Savior, isn't he? He's a wonderful God. And so wonderful is he that he's prepared a way for us and a place that we can dwell with him forever. Do your friends know him? Do you know him? Have you been saved? Have you asked Jesus to come into your heart? That's the gospel message. For you must be born again in order to have peace with God. You must be born again in order to have free access into his grace. You must be born again in order to have received the atonement. You must 
be born again. May the Lord bless us as we've thought together on these words from Romans 5, thinking what we were and what we have, that this week would be a week that we have lived in an entirely different manner, for we have gathered together on this the first day of the week. And may our minds be brought into captivity to Christ to think about his agony, about his back that was smitten, about his visage that was marred greater than any other man's for my soul. And may that move our feet, our tongues, and our minds to bring honor and glory to him. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, how we thank Thee for Thy Word, and how we thank Thee for Thy love for us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We marvel at Thy grace. We marvel at Thy mercies. Knowing our own frames, and like Jeremiah, knowing that our heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, we thank Thee, Lord, for forgiving us of our sins for washing us. Now, Lord, speak to our hearts about our lives, about the things that we do that are wrong, about the sins that easily beset us, about our apathy, perhaps, of the lost. No, God, speak to the hearts of these young men and young women about serving Christ, about the great needs in the pastorate, the great needs in the mission fields, the souls perishing, and who will tell them about Jesus? Bless this congregation, bless the pastor and his associates. May it continue to be a great, great beacon light holding forth the word of God till Jesus comes. May the word dwell in our hearts richly for Jesus' sake. Amen. Let us conclude the service by joining in singing using hymn number 472. 472. Lord, I believe.